Hey everyone, this is the Unorthodoxy Podcast, and in this episode I want to look at the relationship between faith and desire. I do this, of course, for no other reason that these things are really interesting to me. Uh, but there is actually a glorious byproduct of understanding the connection between faith and desire. You get to see other aspects of the world way clearer. So, I mean, maybe understanding is useless if it's not connected somehow to encouraging awareness. As usual, I have way more to say here than I will be able to squeeze into a single podcast, so this is going to be hopelessly incomplete. And in a way, thank goodness for that, if it's incomplete, it means that there's always going to be more to talk about, more to explore and challenge and illuminate and get excited about. Uh, the fact that I won't cover everything means that there's another conversation to be had, and maybe also another reason for friends to get together and chat over a beer or, or a cup of coffee. So, yeah, I think this is going to be interesting. I hope you enjoy it. I, I want to start with a really simple observation. When I speak to my students about what it means to get an education, to be educated, their usual response is that an education is a thing that helps them to acquire more knowledge and understanding. And of course this seems to make some sense because this is certainly part of what education entails. The thing though is that this isn't quite the main thing that education does. Um, this is something that Jamie Smith challenges in his book, the Desiring the Kingdom, which is a mind-blowing book. I, I read most of it while I was uh, on a plane ride from Los Angeles to uh, South Africa. So uh, that book is great. Looking at all kinds of research on media, phenomenology, affect theory, and so on, what you discover and what Jamie Smith discovers in that book is that education is first and foremost something that shapes and changes the way that we desire. Knowledge is secondary to this. This is something that Todd McGowan explores in his book, the fictional Christopher Nolan, which is something I've been reading and really enjoying. Uh, what he notices, and this is specifically with reference to Christopher Nolan's film Memento, is that the knowing subject takes the backseat to the desiring subject every time. In other words, while we may want to think of ourselves as acquiring information or knowledge, this acquisition of information or knowledge is always preceded and guided by a desire to acquire information and knowledge. Desire first, knowledge second. In fact, sometimes knowing the right stuff isn't even an issue at all, which is what you get when someone persists in believing something false, even when its falsehood has been exposed. Something about that falsehood is it's attached to a desire. The desire is always first. This should be in some way obvious to us, but it's the obvious stuff that's often the easiest to overlook. Uh, we go to school and university out of a desire to learn, a desire to be more, a desire to get somewhere in life. Desire is at the center of who we are and how we live. In his book, The Genesis of Desire, J.M. Ugulion uh, writes that desire humanizes us. It impels us to unite with each other, to associate with each other, to assemble into groups and also to resemble each other. Desire forms us in proportion as it animates us and arouses our thoughts and feelings. Desire leads us to seek out the company of others, their approval, their friendship, their support and their recognition. Desire is what gives us our sense of a unified self. 
we're fragmentary beings and we're kind of all over the place. But when we have a single desire or, or, or kind of overarching desire, this creates a sense of unity in the self. Um, so, so desire prevents us from being fragmented or dislocated and deconstructed. But this is where things really get interesting. Desire is never isolated. It doesn't just arrive out of nowhere, uh, but it's always something that arises out of our relationship with others. Desire is always borrowed. It's copied, plagiarized. It's mimetic. So you sit down at a restaurant and a friend orders a hamburger and you suddenly think, hey, I'd like a hamburger too. Or maybe you're hanging out with a group of friends and there's someone new who's tagged along and you think, hey, that's someone you want to be friends with too. Or maybe that's someone like you, you'd you like to date. Uh, or again, maybe you go out with friends to a church and you, that you've never gone to before and they love it. And you start thinking that maybe this is the sort of church you should be going to as well. The desire to do all of these things and pretty much any other desire, it's always mediated through others. I could name endless examples, but I think you get the point. Desire despite what we may want to think, is not self-generated or spontaneous. It doesn't originate with the self, but it always originates with others. So desire functions like a contagion. It's a bit like a spreading virus. Okay, so I know that the, this idea of a contagion may be a bit negative, but the fact that desire is borrowed can also be really great. Uh, the contagion can be joy or solidarity or some kind of healthy catharsis, or any number of good things. Uh, the contagion can be one of love, or maybe more negatively, of supporting Donald Trump in the American election season. So it, it's not a rational, reasonable thing, but it is a fact. Desire precedes our rationalizations and explanations. It's only when we're unconscious that we forget this. In fact, one of the odd things about the fact that desire is copied or borrowed is that we tend to forget this fact almost instantly. The desire for a hamburger at a restaurant feels like it's your own. It feels like you chose it on your own, even though it was your friend's desire first. By the way, your friend's de desire is also borrowed, even if the origin of his desire is possibly less easy to locate. So, believe me, desire is always mediated through the other. Always. This means that the question of what you want is always implicitly a question about who you're copying, who you want to be like, who you think is worth emulating. For example, as we find written in Don Quixote, when a painter wants to become famous for his art, he tries to imitate the originals of the best masters he knows. So, yes, desire is always second-hand, copied, borrowed. It's always something that originates in someone else at its best. This second-hand desiring is a great way to ensure that we have free will. I know that sounds weird at first, but the point is that we do get to pick and choose whose desire desires we want to borrow. At its worst, though, the second-hand desire is the desire of the mindless crowd. A lot depends on, on whether we're aware of who we're following or emulating. I know this may sound disconcerting because it definitely challenges this idea that we're all totally original, and you'd be right. Uh, it does challenge our originality. It makes us out to be less authentic than we thought we were, like the emo kid who thought 
he was being so original uh, in his darkness and doom and gloom and only later realized that he was a walking cliche. So the weird truth here is that the people who are aware of who they copy, they're actually the ones that tend to stand out a little more. They tend to be a little bit more original. It's people locked into unconscious imitation that tend to be as cliched as a kitsch reproduction of an Andy Warhol artwork. We can't escape the mimetic nature of desire. It's it's as essential to life as air, water, and a heartbeat. We don't get to choose against mimetic desire. We only get to choose who we'll model our desires after. We will always follow someone. But we do get to choose who we follow, whose values are worth valuing, whose life is worth imitating. And this is where faith comes in. Faith has to do with choosing who to follow. That is, with whose desires we want to imitate. But by some accident of modernity, people tend to equate faith with knowledge. This is something I spoke a bit about in my last podcast. So being a Christian these days will tend to mean something along the lines of believing that God exists or accepting certain doctrines as being fundamental. But maybe this is something that needs to be tested. Imagine a person who, say, discovers that one of the doctrines he believed was slightly erroneous and consequently seeks to correct this by means of diligent study. You will probably find that this act of correction in and of itself did not make a very big difference to the person's mode of desiring. You can discover a new fact, like the fact that, say, in France, you can legally marry a dead person. This is true. (laughs) So weird. Or the fact that when a zebrafish gets heart disease, it'll discard its broken heart and grow a new one. This is all really interesting stuff. It's interesting in in the sense of its new knowledge. But it's not going to change who you are uh, when you know this stuff. It's just fun. It's just like, it's a secondary thing. Desire is still first. By the way, did you know, like, while I was researching weird facts, I found out that there's a religion called the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Um, I'm not sure how this piece of information helps anyway. I'm not saying that facts or ideas don't matter. I'm not saying that dogmas or doctrines are completely unimportant or irrelevant. I'm just saying that they're subservient to the desire that shifts depending on who you follow. This is why a person can read the Bible and believe all the so-called Christian doctrines and still be a horrible human being. The person who ends up being a horrible human being may believe a bunch of stuff without having their actual desires transformed. They speak with Christian language, so-called, without being very loving at all. Believing does not mean knowing then it's more like following desiring loving in fact this is something that marcus borg points out in his book speaking christian um believing is better understood as beloving as as in the word beloved jesus said that people would know who his followers were by the way that they loved each other but i swear i i know so many christians who think that the primary determinant of authentic faith is possessing particular beliefs about salvation, atonement, hell, and other eschatological disasters, which is why in the Western culture you you have terms like theism, atheism, and agnosticism. These are terms, though, that have come become equated to what you think. And I think that these are, they're not uninteresting questions, but they're nevertheless secondary questions. They're not 
the main issue. The main issue is not what you think or know, but how you desire. These days, it's fairly easy to think that you will know who Jesus' disciples are by how well they've managed to get their doctrinal ducks into a row. But the weird thing is, I know a lot of people that look nothing like Jesus in the way that they treat others. And yet somehow, because they have a solid theology, so many people think that they're the kind of real Christians. And I realize that um, there are all sorts of problematic terminologies here, but you get the idea. I mean, there's this this test of authenticity is kind of located in knowledge, and it, it doesn't really make sense to me. So you get celebrity preachers, for instance, who insist that heresy is about um, he- wrong belief, and, and in the process, they can treat others like they don't deserve to be in church, which is not a very loving thing to do, generally. My premise then is very simple. It's that faith is not the same as knowing stuff. It's about the fact that our desires change when we trust in certain people and the way that they see things and live out their loves. Faith in Jesus is maybe not so much about what we know regarding the meaning of salvation or or what we claim regarding whether God exists or not. Again, I'm not saying these questions are unimportant. What I am saying is that maybe faith in Jesus is more about trusting that his way of desiring is preferable to the usual egotistical way of desiring that we tend to encounter in others and in ourselves. Because this this trust, this trust in another way of desiring, that's the thing that's going to transform us and the way that we live in the world and the way that we love each other. So, yeah, this kind of raises a question, what way of desiring is Jesus's way of desiring? And of course, like we, there has to be a little bit of speculation uh, here, but but I think it's still it's still worth exploring. So there are many ways that we could look at this, um, and so I'm just going to focus on one angle. To get to an answer, I want to look at the text uh, in the book of Genesis. It kind of replays how desire works. So you know the story in Genesis three. God tells Eve and Adam not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the serpent has other ideas. The serpent, in effect, tells Eve that she should eat the fruit because when she eats the fruit, she will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's particularly significant about this is that the serpent, in doing this, makes God out to be Eve's rival. So there's this idea of Eve desiring to be like God, desiring according to a false image of God. So there are other ways of reading this story, but but the thing I want to pick on is this simple fact. God in the story is essentially non-rivalrous, not interested in competing with anyone. A competition with God seems like a really silly idea anyway, but the serpent creates a picture of God as rivalrous and competitive. It's as if God, in the mind of the serpent, is a territorial God. But this sort of territorial, rivalrous God is definitely not the God that Jesus seems to be uh, talking about. And and rivalry is not just is not how Jesus seems to operate either. Jesus doesn't seem to want to see himself in competition with anyone. He treats other ideologies as being kind of in totally different categories. They're different issues. They're not unimportant issues. But they're definitely different from, they have different concerns from what he's trying to get at. 
He doesn't even want pe- people to brag about him when he heals them, for instance. It's it's as if he, he isn't interested in being the kind of celebrity that everyone wants him to be. And he doesn't seem to want to impose views on others either, which is maybe why he asks so many questions and why he's not even that phased when by um, people's different views of him. Uh, you can read the gospel text and, and see see this thing again and again. It's, it's difficult to read competitiveness and rivalry into the story of Jesus. I know that this may be a tough pill to swallow. Usually we think of Christianity in terms of rivalry as if it is at odds or in rivalry with other religions, with other worldviews and ways of seeing. But I don't think that this kind of Christianity has much to do with the way of Jesus. It seems to me that Jesus was trying to bring about a way of being and acting that challenged this frame of rivalry. Why? Well, I think about this. Do you, do you think it's possible to have dibs on God? I mean, do you think it's possible to capture God in any particular kind of language or a particular kind of theology? Like capture completely? I think Jesus knew that this was impossible. Uh, you can you can kind of point in the right direction, but you can never take full ownership uh, through language as if language is a way to imprison uh, the ultimate reality. So people have always loved the idea of inserting God into their own competitive and rivalrous ways of, of living and being. But, but by doing this, they actually miss the fact that God is essentially not part of that way of thinking and desiring. It's the logic of the serpent uh, that makes God out to be a rival. It's not the logic of Jesus. So so this is what I think. Jesus' desire, to me at least, seems to be a desire to find God's upside-down kingdom in the midst of everything else. As a seed planted in a field, and it's so surprising that it transforms the meaning of the whole field that it's planted in. Again, especially for more conservative listeners, I want to stress that I'm not chucking the specifics out. I'm not saying something dumb like anything goes when I talk about this kind of non-rivalrous Christianity. In fact, I have yet to meet anyone who actually believes that anything goes. What I am saying is this, desire comes first. Desiring, not knowing. And I think that the mode of desiring that is modeled by Jesus is not a rivalrous kind of desire. So here's a little provocation. What if the kind of faith that the world needs is not faith in facts or ways of knowing or specific things that can be believed, but is a kind of faith that mediates a better way of desiring for us, a way of desiring that doesn't immediately make God into a trophy that you put out on your mantelpiece? I think believing in the right stuff can be really great. Obviously, it's Nice to know stuff like the fact that an ostrich's eye is larger than its brain or the fact that most lipstick contains fish scales. I mean, it's really nice. It's nice to know how the doctrine of atonement works, if it does, and that the rapture was largely an invention of a weird modernist theologian rather than an ancient belief. But we should be careful to put too much weight on our knowing when it is how we desire And what we desire, that is the primary issue, because desire is what drives the way we actually live. Desire even drives the way that we pursue knowledge. Desire comes first, although, of course, it is always borrowed.